Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Assistant Director of Career Services, Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And today's guest on our show is... Good morning. I am Luke Campbell. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science here at Northwest. It's a pleasure to be here. So thank you both. Yes, thank Welcome. you. Welcome. So excited to have you on our show. First, let's ask you about uh, Associate Professor of Political Science. What do you teach? What is your specialty? What is your area of interest? I've taught many different things here at Northwest. A few things that are certainly outside of my area of expertise um, my first semester here, I taught media and politics, which is not anything that I've ever been familiar with at all. And that was interesting. So uh, I've settled in now in a much more comfortable uh, and then predictable rotation that's a lot closer to my like, actual academic training and my research interests. So primarily, I teach um, political theory, political thought, that that sort of thing. Um, there, there's a number of classes related to that. I teach you know, an intro to political theory course, and then I teach a few upper division ones. I've had the opportunity to kind of revamp the theory offerings here. So when I got here, the two upper division theory courses were modern Western political theory and then early Western political theory. So very like Western-centric, very sort of Eurocentric kind of thing. So I taught each of those once, I think, and I was like, all right, I, we got to do something different. We got to broaden out a little bit and, and offer some stuff that's that's a little bit wider. So I created a course. It's like a I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. It's called the World of Political Ideas, and so we look at um, broad political ideas from both the East and the West, and kind of like a comparison kind of thing. And so that class has been been a lot of fun. And I also, once in a while, get to teach terrorism, which is absolutely my favorite class to, to teach. I like to joke and say that it's the last. Um, it, it really is so, in more ways than one. And so that one's really fun because we get to like really examine like, okay, is terrorism really actually a threat, you know, empirically? And so we come, we come to decide, like, no, it's not really, but there's this whole just political apparatus that's sprung up around it. And that's been a, a lot of fun to force students to kind of, like, think critically about and, and come to terms with. So those are just a few of the, the things that I offer here. At, at so maybe you could explain a little bit more in depth for those of our listeners who are not sure what political theory is. Could you explain what that means? It's essentially like the study of ideas. So the way that I structure my intro political theory course is that we, we look at like a number of ideas, both high level and low level. So whether we know it or not, we're all kind of like making judgments and assumptions about ideas like authority, for example, or rulers. That's like a big one, right? Like we're, we're really sort of evaluating both empirically and theoretically what makes a good ruler. And so we have that's one of the many things we talk about. And so we read like a number of different perspectives on that and just kind of evaluate, you know, different perspectives on, okay, what does it mean to be a good ruler? Who is a good ruler? What are the characteristics of a good ruler? I try to set it up to where we have multiple of these ideas and then we evaluate them from different ideological perspectives. Uh, so like 
what do conservatives think about? What do liberals think about? What do what do Marxists think about rulers? What do anarchists think about rulers? Right. And so it's a really nice way to get students to kind of evaluate these ideas in real time and have some solid kind of grounding upon which they can compare ideas. So that's what theory is um, and, and kind of how we do it. And then when we get to the upper division courses, it's a lot more in depth. Obviously, um, I'm having them read things that are more difficult, but still, I really like to work in like dichotomies or sort of compare and contrast um, about, you know, different ideas of what is politics? What is the purpose of politics? What's the purpose of government? That sort of thing. So that's what we did. How did you become interested in this? Has this always been something that you've thought about? Like talk <laughs> us through like getting a PhD in this subject area. So how far back do we want to go here? Far back as you want. So my journey to this point has been interesting and, and probably pretty unconventional, I would say. So I'm originally from this area. I grew up just about 30 minutes um, north of Maryville, tiny little town just across the border in Iowa. And my family aren't academics. Like my, my dad growing up was a, an auto mechanic and my mom was a nurse. Um, and so like my exposure to, to academia and to this whole thing was really limited. I ended up going to William Jewell College, which is in, in Liberty, just outside of Kansas City. And the primary reason I went there is because I was offered a, a football scholarship to play down there. And so I, I never would have like gotten into a school like that without, <laughs> without my athletic potential. And so I ended up going down there. Honestly, I knew I wanted to play football in college, but I was nowhere near good enough to play here at Northwest. <laughs> Obviously, we're pretty good here and I was not near good enough to play here. So I went to Jewel and I ended up there. I started out as like a, a history major wanting to either like teach history in high school or be like a PE teacher or something, right? Like that was kind of my path. I ended up taking a course at William Jewell that was listed both, it was dual credit history and political science. And my roommate at the time was a political science major. And he was like, hey man, this, this professor is really good. You should really check this out. And my wife, my now wife at the time was also sort of encouraging like, yeah, give it a shot. You know, you, you never know. It might be interesting. So I did that and it was just like this instant, like, holy cow, I've never experienced anything like this. Not only just the subject matter, but like the clear focus on like being an independent thinker, being a critical thinker, being someone who is sort of like independently seeking answers to things that just kind of just lit this amazing fire. I ended up then shifting my major. My, my wife encouraged me like, yes, go, go do this, pursue this. I shifted my major over to political science and then from that point, I knew I wanted to continue in graduate school of some kind. I considered law school for a little bit, took a law course, knew instantaneously that was not for me at all. I didn't want to do that. So it, it was always kind of the plan to, to go and get another degree of some kind. I took a year off, did, you know, did like a real job or whatever for a while, then went back and started my master's degree, finished that up. And then like from that point on, um, it, it was pretty clear that like I really wanted to go get a PhD because I was still just in love with the study of politics, in love with the, like the ideas and the kind of the pursuit of knowledge that, that political science, particularly theory, really allows you to do. So went on from there, went to KU, enrolled in the PhD program, and then spent you know, whatever four years there getting a PhD. And so 
it, it was exhausting, of course. Like getting a PhD, I, I tell people all the time, it's not necessarily about how smart you are. It's like, can you handle the workload? Can you stick it out to the end, right? I had some just incredible um, advisors at, at KU, a couple of whom are still really good friends of mine um, that, that saw me through to the end. And then um, this was my, I, I worked as, a, as an adjunct for a year. Uh, I taught at Jewel and I taught at Avila for a year. Um, and then this job came open and uh, I applied and I've been here ever since. And I, I love it for the most part. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a good gig. Talk to me about this little, I worked for one year. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your, so where did you work? What were you doing? And I'm interested in your perspective, maybe around the value or maybe how you approach grad school after not going to school for a year in between there. So right after I finished William Jewell, I really, I knew it was always kind of my intent to go back to grad school at some point. I just wasn't sure like how long. I was kind of burned out at that point. I just needed it like a minute. And so I went to work for a company called Scarborough International. They do like international freight forwarding, customs clearance, that sort of thing. And so for a year or so, I sat at the desk and like managed the the import of, of like international shipments from China, basically. That was just definitely not, <laughs> not for me. So, you know, just after a few months of that, it was, it was clear to me then that like, okay, this, this is not my path. I'm not interested in this whatsoever. I really definitely for sure want to pursue, you know, another degree. And so because of that, because of that, like perspective, I really sort of jumped in both feet into my master's program and then into my PhD program because that was that was clear to me that's what I wanted. Interestingly enough, right after I started my master's program, this was in 2009, 2010, I think, that's when like the the global recession was like really taking off. I ended up getting laid off from the the job that I had and then immediately they needed somebody to go actually work out in their warehouse. So I lost my desk job or whatever, was offered a job to go out and work in their warehouse like that same day, which is weird or whatever. So I was doing that. I was like unloading shipping containers like in the morning and then I would go to class and for my master's in the afternoon. It was exhausting, obviously, but it was just that sort of juxtaposition was just clear to me like, yes, this is what I want to do. This is my focus. This is my path. Um, and, it, and it gave me that extra sort of like just emotional or existential kind of boost to get through it. So when you went into that political science class at William Jewell, did you have strong political feelings or were you kind of agnostic politically? I'm always interested in talking with students in political science to see, did you come in with like your your little area or were you open to it? Because I feel like the result I see with political science is no matter where you start off, you kind of end up in the middle a little bit. Like you learn like not to be hyper-partisan or anything, you kind of end up in the middle. We have the Missouri legislative interns who go to Jeff City and I've sent students who are very far one side or the other and they come back and they're like, oh, it's just compromise. So I'm kind of more in the center now. So it's always fascinating to me. That's good. I think that's the way it should be. Like that's how I approach the the study of, of politics, particularly when I teach is like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to let students kind of peek behind the curtain. I'm going to be very sort of objective and analytical um, and then you're going to learn how to be an independent thinker about this super important topic. I went to college with, I guess, what would have been like pretty basic, pretty rudimentary, you know, political views that that would have been obviously, and this is the case for most people, 
would have been shaped and formed by my upbringing, uh, you know, by my parents and, and people that I grew up around. So I had like views about politics that were kind of given to me. Um, I hadn't necessarily really been uh, given the opportunity to be kind of an independent thinker about politics. So I wasn't, my views weren't like super hardened necessarily. It was fun, not only like in that, in that class, but then also some of the, some of the folks that I was hanging out with uh, in the dorms or whatever, were all kind of political science majors as well. And so it just became this really sort of like fun intellectual kind of situation where we were just always talking about ideas and stuff like that. And that was something that I had never been exposed to. And so that really then shaped my, my worldview and how I approach like thinking. So what was the most difficult part of going from grad school student to professor? Yeah, that's a really good question. A couple of things that, that I've learned um, about that along the way, and I think maybe the, the most difficult thing for me to kind of get over, I suppose, is that w- when you're in graduate school, particularly in a PhD program, you it's it's the super focused, pretty highly intensive, um, like deep dive in, into the literature. Like you're you're reading a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of which is pretty interesting. But like you're 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 exposed to the literature, you're exposed to the field, you're exposed to like the debates within the field and like all these different perspectives and that sort of thing. And so then once you start teaching, that's kind of like all you know, that's all you've been exposed to. So you're like, all right, here we go. I'm gonna have these students read like this and this and this, and we're gonna talk about these ideas, like just like I've been doing in my graduate seminars. And then like, you know, you know, that comes <laughs> to a to a screeching halt because you you get to the realization that like undergraduates do not care about any of that stuff. And so you have to, and it it took me a minute to kind of like figure that out. I realized it pretty quickly, but then it takes you a minute to kind of pivot and orient to like, how can I get them to care about these ideas, not in that sort of grad schooly kind of way, but in a way that it's applicable to them in a way that they might find interesting or relevant to get them the skills that I want them to have. And so that was eye-opening and like difficult transition that I, that I had to make personally. It may be different for others, but I, I think particularly when you come from like an R1 research, you know, PhD program, like I was at KU, then coming to a, a primarily teaching focused school, like that is a really big transition. What advice do you have for students maybe who are starting out, maybe who also want to teach in some way in the future, but don't know exactly how that's all going to shake out? You really have to make sure that you are focused, but also like really love the study of this because you're going to go through some really hard stuff. It's a war of attrition, essentially. Like, can you last to the finish? It's going to be difficult. You have to then focus on, on the end. If that's your end goal, particularly when you get past like the exams stage of things and get into like writing your diss and that kind of thing, you're pretty much on your own. And a lot of people kind of lose track and lose focus at that moment. So you got to really be sure that you love this enough to last four or five years of really intensive, really difficult reading, writing, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So there's been a few that, uh, that I've come across that, that definitely do love it in that way, but it's, it's a very different thing than, than undergrad. That's the thing I, I want my Z's to really <laughs> be aware of. This is going to be different. What did you write your dissertation over? So I was looking at the, the evo- so there's this whole broad idea, this whole broad um, field of thinking in, um, in political theory, particularly in like international theory, 
that has to do with what we call just war theory. And it looks at like the ethics of war. It's rooted in like Christian tradition, essentially, but it's, it's come to be secularized now. Uh, we think about the, the ethics of war. Is war just? Is war unjust? How do you wage a just and ethical war? These kinds of things. So I was looking at um, just war theory's prescription of what's called the probability of success. That way we, we get to evaluate like, okay, if, if war has a probability of success, then it could be like just or whatever, right? I took a very sort of critical angle on that. I was trained as, as kind of a critical theorist. Um, and so my perspective on it is to say that like, well, obviously with regard to like the, the political, sometimes the political needs of war, politicians, lawmakers, um, people who are waging war will always have this perspective of like, yes, this war is winnable. And so there's this sort of politically constructed way to continue to sell war as winnable when in fact it may not be winnable at all. And to really sort of like look at the, the ethical, critical uh, ethical perspectives on that. I looked, uh, I traced a few different things. I traced uh, particularly this idea in like the war on terror, how the war on terror was framed for the Bush administration forward um, and how the Bush administration was continually actually, and Obama was doing it too, looking back at World War II as like their model for success, trying to move that model into the present and say, this is how we're going to win this war. This is the only standard for victory. And so like anything short of that is like, you know, we, we <laughs> anything short of that is, is failure essentially. And so that sets up this just like prescription for ongoing or never ending war, because you're not going to win a war against a tactic in the same way that like the U S won the war against, against Nazi Germany. And so it was, it was a fun little project. Um, I've, I've mined a couple of things out of it for publications. Um, at some point here, I, I want to try to write a book based loosely on that. So see how that goes. <laughs> Time is the issue. Right? Speaking of books. Yeah. So as a political theorist, what are your three recommendations? You know, if someone doesn't want to take a class on it, but three critical texts maybe that you should check out. Only three, huh? Yes. This is why this is a difficult exercise. Only three. Oh, man. Um, you got to have Plato in there, but maybe not necessarily the Republic. That would probably be one that most people would go to. I would say any of like the trials of Socrates from, from Plato, probably the Apology. That one, I assigned that one in multiple classes. And that one is is a really incredible sort of like humbling thing. Like if you read it correctly, it really forces you to think about um, just how like oversure we are about modernity. And that one's a really kind of important check. So, so there's that one. I think, boy, three, it's so hard. Obviously being like the train like critical theorist that i am i think anything by foucault is going to be really interesting for people to come to terms with foucault is i think pretty crazy but some of his ideas are really important just to give us a, a more critical perspective um discipline and punish is, is a good one i assign a couple of chapters of, of that to to my students in a couple of classes and those are always some pretty wild like <laughs> discussions <laughs> So that one, and then, oh man, anything kind of in the in the in between then. So you've got something for, from pretty old, and then like a little bit more modern critical theory, something kind of in the middle there of that like early modern period, I think would be pretty good. 
the Leviathan, particularly parts of the, of the Leviathan, I think are really important for, for us to get a handle on like the ideas that permeate our modern perception of like what the purpose of government is. Um, that's a pretty foundational text as well. And then obviously fast forwarding to Foucault, Foucault just collapses all of that, but it's important to see like the evolution of the development. So yeah, those would be three. I'm sure I'll think of three other ones later on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll give you three more, right? Yeah. Fun fact, my, uh, a little nerd kernel here. Um, <laughs> the In the order of things in the introduction where he talks about the Chinese encyclopedia, I think everyone should read that, like mind-blowing. Um, that is my one of my favorite parts of Foucault. Just oh, interesting. The Chinese encyclopedia idea, for whatever reason, for the people who don't know, he talk, he's talking about in the order of things how how we have ordered <laughs> and that other people make different orders. I mean, which is kind of the basis of political theory, right? Like is how you've ordered things um, and how the Chinese encyclopedia was grouping. I can't remember what it was grouping animals based on, I don't know, animals that kill you in the night. Like, <laughs> and you're like, Oh, that's very interesting. You know, yes. animals that eat their own young. Uh, it, it was just a crazy grouping of like the way they'd ordered these things. And that's just one of my favorite Foucault, parts i don't know i read that over and over just it, it makes me think differently about things so well that's that's kind of the point right that's the kind of thing that i love uh it's just this completely different like ontological orientation um that's one of the big things that i try to accomplish in my world of political ideas class is like all right we're gonna you know half of the course or so is like all right we're gonna have a, a quick sort of overview of the evolution of western thought and then we're like we're gonna completely change direction and look at how other parts of the world have like ordered society or like set up their ontological and epistemological perspectives and they're completely different and so it makes us think like well i mean just how universal are these ideas like maybe not <laughs> it's pretty fun so as this is a career services show and people give us a lot of flack. I'm talking about higher ed in general, right? A humanities major. They always say, what are you going to do when you have to go get a job? If you're a humanities major, tell us, what can we do with our humanities classes? How is that going to help us in our work? I mean, there's obviously multiple things. There's obviously like really specific uh, sort of governmental work you can do. We have one of my advisees from my, my early years, is a state representative now. He went on to law school and is now a state representative from the St. Louis area. There's obviously people that take the path of governmental work, policy work. Uh, one of our professors, Dr. Herrera, is really connected to like public policy and these kinds of things. And so there's certainly a path for that. Uh, there's obviously the law school thing. And that even if you don't become an attorney, a law degree is, is an incredible you know, resource that would pay incredible dividends for folks down the road. But the way that I teach, um, you know, humanities, social sciences, that thing, and, and the way that everyone else around you teaches is that like, okay, yes, you're going to get the exposure to, to the ideas. You're going to get an in-depth, you know, exposure to, to politics, to government, to like the methods of social science. Like these things are extremely important. But the, the other way, the other thing that a lot of us are trying to accomplish is that like we use politics, we use the study of this as, as a medium or as like a path to teaching really important skills that are transferable to almost everything. And if you've come through here and you've taken political theory, or you've taken campaigns and elections, or you've taken uh, public policy with Herrera, you're going to have a really good foundation for like, okay, you've, you've read a bunch of stuff, but you've also taken a bunch of information and be able to like 
critically and analytically synthesize it down into a nicely distilled and communicated product. And like that process of doing that is extremely important. And those, those skills pay dividends for anything that you do. You got to be able to communicate. You got to be able to think. You got to be able to transfer big ideas, big high level things down into like smaller level processes and things that are workable for everyone. And so that's a really nice um, package of skills that, that I think we do extremely well here. I would think it makes someone a better participant in the political process too. Like, you know, you can be a more informed voter if you've had a class where you've had to like talk about legislation and how it works or the process. And so I would think that it also, you know, outside of vocationally, it also just makes you a better citizen of the world because you understand kind of why things are the way they are and kind of how they work. And I think there's an important part to that because, you know, just to show up on election day and vote for the things that sound good or the people with a certain letter next to their name, like that's not the same as thinking critically about it or actually, you know, having a discussion with someone maybe in your family or your friend group about it, and then really having your own thoughts about it too. I hope that's something that we're also accomplishing is like people being good citizens, good engaged and and informed citizens, um, or maybe even to a certain extent sort of jaded by the process. (laughs) You take enough of this, you get, you get an exposure to how things work or like how they don't work maybe, which which can be problematic. But, But yes, you get a much different perspective on, on your role um, as a in this um, democracy that we're still trying to keep alive here. So you mentioned independent thinking. I mean, I can't even think to think critically to think independently is honestly in in my opinion, and I supervise lots of students and people, like if I had someone who really was an independent thinker, I mean, Travis, I, I can't talk too much, right? I can't throw you into the bus. <laughs> but to be able to bring uh, your perspective to the table and to be able to say, here's why I think the way that I do about this process in the business, in the school, in the government. I mean, that in itself is extremely valuable. Oh, it's it's huge. Think independently. Yeah. To me, I think that is the real purchase or the real important part of, of what we do at the university level or higher ed. And you can see it too. I mean, I've, I've seen it now multiple times with students who come in as, as, you know, first years or sophomores or whatever. And like, they're used to a certain type of like thinking, I call it like the sit and receive model that like education is kind of turned into at some levels to where I'm forcing them to do something completely different. And it's really uncomfortable for them. <laughs> they really don't want to do it and they push back on it. Uh, but like, once you can kind of get over that and show like, okay, this is, this is interesting. This is relevant. This is kind of fun then you can start to then really build on those skills. And I've, I've seen, and it's just been an incredible pleasure to see like the, the evolution of, of, of students getting to that point when they graduate and like just how grateful they are of, of the, <laughs> what they've been given and how hard we've had to push them sometimes. So it's, it's pretty amazing. That sounds like a great place to end. Yeah, I think so too. So thank you so much for being here this morning. Well, thank you both for, for the invite. I'm glad we were able to finally make this work. I'm, I'm flattered and, and humbled that you all care about what I have to say. So it's been- Well, thank you for what you do. We appreciate it. So that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.